This is John DeFalb from John Sandoz Bookshop in London. Today I am pleased to have with me on Zoom Sally Vickers, whose novel The Gardener was published in November. Sally's career as a novelist began about 20 years ago with Miss Garnet's Angel and has continued with, with a run of much-loved novels including The Other Side of You, The Cleaner of Chartres, The Librarian, The Grandmothers. She has also worked as a psychoanalyst, amongst other things. And I wondered, when looking at this, the new novel, whether you've ever worked in any form as a gardener, Sally? Only as a little child. Um, ah. My father was a very active communist, and when he lost his job, um, where he was, when he was warden of an adult education college in Stoke-on-Trent, we came to London to live with my godmother and her husband, and they were avid gardeners, and they had no children, and my godmother was a very maternal woman, and she pretty much adopted me, which I always think saved my bacon, because my mother was a double amputee, which made her pretty tricky, actually, in various ways. So Betsy, who was my godmother, sort of swept me up. And um, one of the things we did together was we gardened. When they were invited, they were communists too, and they were invited by none other than Mao Zedong to go to China for six months. I was left in charge of the garden. So I was, I suppose, a gardener of sorts. And that's really where my interest in gardening is rooted, I suppose, in that childhood experience, which is also very connected with my godmother. So, although never having worked professionally as a gardener, it is absolutely in your bones to be in a garden and to look at a garden. And this novel, just thinking back, it must have been partly, if not largely, written during lockdown. It was, but the interesting thing is I was going to write it anyway. Um, I just started it. I started it in October 2019. Um, I knew where it was going to be set. I'd already decided where it was going to be set, which is on the Welsh borders, what is known as the Welsh marches, or as the Daily Express liked to call it the Welsh marshes when they reviewed the book. They reviewed it kindly, so I shouldn't say that. Um, It's a very interesting area to me because it's the area of England which has the most remnants of um, the pre-Anglo-Saxon society, the Celtic society, um, and the pre-Roman society, which is what the very early inhabitants of, of Britain largely were. And there are a number of um, ancient sites there, both um, in stone in the form of buildings, but most importantly for me, uh, holy wells, which actually got taken over when England became Christianized in the sort of seventh, eighth century, but were originally part of what was called the old religion so I already had that in mind as, as where the book was going to be set. And then lockdown happened and I couldn't go and be there. I, I knew it quite well because I'd lived on the borders. Um, and I like to be where I, I'm uh, 
in the um, locale of a book when I'm writing about it. But I had it pretty much in my mind. And so what really happened to me was because I was, I was renting a cottage in the country, not unhappily in Shropshire, where the book is set, but in Wiltshire, um, which had a large and neglected garden. I sort of used this piece of apparent misfortune and set the book in a large Jacobean house, but with a very large garden. So I had a house, which is typical of that area, um, the locale, which I wanted to write about anyway. And I sort of brought the garden that I was gardening myself into that locale for the book. And actually it made the writing of the book very, very pleasurable. So when everyone else was having a beastly time, I'm sorry to say, although I was not partying in the gardens of number 10 Downing Street, I was digging my garden in Wiltshire. Um, and it was, as you know yourself, Johnny, because you're a writer too, you need a lot of physical activity when you've been writing, because apart from anything else, your back gets bent and your shoulders get cramped and you are, you run out of ideas. So being in a garden and digging away, especially as there was sort of quite a lot of um, rootling about in the um, historic layers of, of, of Celtic Britain, somehow fed into the narrative of the book and the texture of the book, I think. Yes. Um, and mm -hmm. I think also being surrounded by nature certainly affected me. I mean, my father was a great bird watcher and um, perceptive readers will have noticed there are often birds in my books because I grew up with a bird watcher and therefore our birds have remained very important to me. But birds, of course, had a wonderful lockdown. Okay, um, and um, so, so, so the birds and the garden um, also got into the book. Yes. I suspected that the living in a garden must have contributed to the gardener. Um, but the gardener of the title is yes. um, somebody quite different from you. Um, tell us yes. who... Tell, tell, Tell us who he is and how he, the, the eponymous gardener, engages with this garden and the holy well. I, I suppose I should say that it's not entirely clear who the gardener is in the, from the title. Yes, I mean, you're right, there is a principal gardener, but Hassie, whose full name is Halcyon, um, which is a classical reference to kingfishers, which features in the book, um, is one gardener. Her friend, Miss Foote, who she makes friends with, who is a retired school teacher, is another gardener. But I think you're right, the, the principal gardener is the Albanian migrant who has come to England with a, a wife he meets in Corfu, which where there's a large Albanian population has been abandoned by said wife and is therefore in need of employment um, and a loner, a bit like Hassi. Um, and she takes him on, even though he clearly knows nothing about gardening because right from the start, she feels a kind of fellow feeling with him. Um, and it's a fellow feeling which evolves very, very gradually as the book 
evolves. I chose an Albanian because I go a lot to Corfu, uh, where there is a large Albanian population, and therefore I know quite a few Albanians. Um, I, I wanted a migrant um, because I wanted somebody who was a stranger who had an affinity with Hassi, but was very different. Um, but I also wanted to have somebody um, who wasn't entirely unfamiliar with me. And so although I deliberately don't really develop Murat's inner life because I wanted him to be more a figure onto whom other characters project their own ideas, mm. Mm. good and bad, as we do with migrants. It's a pretty common phenomenon, unfortunately. Um, I nevertheless felt quite comfortable with him. I knew what he looked like. Um, I knew how he would be. I knew in my mind what his family background was um, and how he could have hooked up with a, a rather shallow English tourist and been seduced enough to come back to a rather unfriendly, a rather close-knit community, uh, English community. I thought that was quite an interesting feature yeah. too, because I, I like strangers in, in my, in my and uh, outsiders in my books. The, the, um, you mentioned, you, you, say, you say that he's a loner, which of course he is. Um, and it's interesting, you often have these quite self-sufficient characters in your books. And you say that you don't give him or let on to much of an inner life for him. And I suppose since he is a loner, he doesn't, after all, let on very much about himself to anyone else. Um, but, and, and he is therefore exposed to the projection of other people. Um, yeah. So is the, your main character, Hassi. Uh, yeah. She has her sister with her, but the two sisters have quite fixed ideas about one another, which during the course of the novel are subverted a, a bit. Well, quite a lot, I hope, subverted. I think we do tend to have fixed ideas about members of our family. Mm. I think it's one of the ways we cope, actually, with the, if you like, enforced intimacy of a family. I mean, what? with friends and lovers, um, there's more space with luck. Um, and so there's movement, I, I think there's room for movement and a, a degree of fluidity of perception. But I think part of the, and I speak now as a former psychoanalyst and somebody who worked a lot with fairly difficult families. Um, I, think, I think part of the way we protect ourselves from the rough and emotional rough and tumble of family enough is by, by forming a, a position on other people. And actually as a psychoanalyst, um, dismantling positions on parents and siblings is one of the things one often finds oneself doing. Um, <clears throat> and these two are very different. They've both been favorites of the parents, Hassi of her father, Margot, the elder sister of her mother, but the mother is the more dominant parent. And the father, although a decent and rather um, loving man, is not very assertive. And so um, he doesn't count as much in the family emotional economy. Um, and I think one of Hass's defenses is to 
preserve um, a slightly, uh, more than slightly antagonistic, critical image of her sister. Uh, we know a bit less about Margot's image of Hassi, um, but one of the things that we do pick up is that one of Hattie's defences is to take the moral high ground with Margot. Um, yes. And I think one of the things that transpires as the book goes on is that the moral high ground can be a rather dangerous place to occupy. And it indeed, is. It, it, it jolly well is. And as I always say, the company up there isn't much fun. <laughs> and cold. Cold, drafty, and bad <laughs> company. Much better to come down <laughs> with the rest. <laughs> but I think poor Hassie, I mean, I don't, I don't didn't mean it in any way aggressively about her. I think it's one of her defences. But it is what gets her into trouble. And it's also what, on in her sort of slight self-righteousness, it gets her into trouble with Murat, or rather it gets him into trouble because she takes to task a long-standing member of this community where she is actually a, a newcomer, an absolute newcomer. So she does not obey the, the rule of all newcomers to established communities, which is hold your horses and keep your mouth shut. She interferes by going to complain about something a naughty little girl has said about Murat. And this, of course, arouses hostility. And when trouble arises in the village, the projections that are all waiting to get landed on Murat, it's written in um, 2018, so it's just post-Brexit, pre-COVID, but that also happened to be a period when the Sun in particular was waging a campaign against um, <clears throat> gangs of Albanian drug smugglers and drug traders. So Albanians were very much in the focus of, of um, a certain kind of press. And the village, of course, becomes instantly convinced that Murat is a bad hat and has done this terrible thing, which I won't disclose. And all of this is prompted by Ihas's desire to be good and put things right, because she's a good moral person. And I suppose um, I was exploring the idea that is well put by William Blake, that the way to hell is paved with good intentions. Margot has no obvious good intentions, but in many ways proves to be a more naturally generous person than her sister. So I think there is quite a, I, I, I enjoyed that relationship actually, and the sort, of pro, the sort of processes they go through. It's interesting also that the, what, precipitates the, if you like, the subversion of their fixed ideas about one another is the death of a parent. It's why they have come together. Yes. Um, it's the death of a parent and it's, it, it allows them, I think, to review their parents in a different light because there's a sh now a, sh a shared um, perspective on the upbringing and the parents. And of course, that is, it turns out to be one of the good things about having a family that in certain situations, I think particularly when one becomes finally orphaned, there is a kind of comfort in having a sibling or siblings with whom one can share the experience. I know both you and I have been through this. Um, 
So you're right. Um, as in many of my books, death is a precipitator. Mm. I mean, it, it comes often, quite often. It's it's reasonably it's a reasonably mild, minor theme in this book, but um, I mean, it's the opening of Miss Garnet's Angel. It's important in the other side yeah. of you. I very often resort to death as, I suppose, a creative stimulant. Um, can, can we come back to the, the Holy Wells? Um, it's a feature of your books in, in general that you're interested in things that, if you like, defy the rational or occupy sort of the margins of the empirical. How would you characterize that in the gardener? What what happens? Well, um, it is the case that it is a very numinous landscape, that borderland between Wales and England. As I said, it is where the the Celts withdrew, um, both when the Romans first occupied uh, Britain. Um, and then later when the Anglo-Saxons and when the Romans left and the Anglo-Saxons arrived in their hordes. Um, and the Celts, the early Celts were a very, um, I mean, they were great nature worshippers. And they not only had holy wells and holy pools, but they had holy trees, which sadly, when uh, the country was Christianized, um, fully Christianized in the seventh and eighth century. The holy trees got chopped down because the Christians didn't like them. They couldn't do very much about the holy wells, but they were deeply involved in all kinds of um, rites to do with um, fertility. Um, traditionally, women immersed themselves in the holy pools when they wanted to conceive. Um, they were also places of healing and there's you know there's a a, cert, a certain school of thought that thinks there were um, efficacious minerals in the waters that possibly help particularly with eyesight great deal to do with sight um, and I have always been rather fascinated by ancient religions I mean again I've looked at Zoroastrianism, I've looked at Judaism. Um, I felt it was probably time to look at paganism, the early paganism, the old religion. But linked to all of that, um, they were also thought to be the, the, the entrances to what was called the other world where spirits and fairies and elves and such like lived. And I mean, it's difficult to talk about because I deliberately leave it very, very ambiguous. Yeah, I was going to say... The, the, these not a, not things... a book about fairies, but the fact that people have believed in them is relevant. Yes. It's and they, they hover around the fringes of yes. the book without ever being quite explicit, although you, one could perhaps interpret one or two of the events as being well there's a key event at, at yeah. the end of the book which um arises out of um Hass's experience in what you learn was a sacred grove it's a wood she walks through mm. her house her and margot's house is situated a little way outside the village 
um, about a mile and a half outside the village. So to get to the village, which she needs to do to get supplies and she doesn't have a car, she goes through this wood where there is a pool. And this wood be increasingly becomes a place where she becomes more and more sensitive to a certain atmosphere. Mm. Um, she doesn't quite know why, but various experiences start to um, invade her consciousness in, in an entirely benign way. And at a much later date in the book, she learns <clears throat> something about the previous occupant of the house who had also had similar experiences with this uh, so-called holy or sacred pool. Um, and the previous occupant most certainly did believe in fairies, we learn, but it's left rather open as to quite what they may be and quite what they may mean to Hassi. And I felt I rather wanted to leave it to the sensibility of the reader, because I think I allow for a number of different readings of that. It is perhaps relevant to say that Hassi's work is as an illustrator. She's been a rather good illustrator and she's illustrated for a rather good children's author who has died. And in the period when she was nursing her father, her, her work has dropped and the only work she's um, able to get in the lifetime of the book is to illustrate a rather awful um, children's book about a very um, noxious elf who is a very sort of um, crude and Disney-like elf. And there is, I suppose, um, an implied contrast between this ersatz elf who's called Elfine, whom she absolutely detests, and the rather mysterious potential presence of these creatures from another realm who are of a, of a very different kind. I mean, I probably had a Midsummer Night's Dream at the back of my mind. I didn't intentionally have it there, but it's, if you think a Midsummer Night's Dream, it's, there were reflections of that in my wood. I think. <laughs> There's another aspect of the unexplained, which is rather intriguing. Um, Hassie is in, in the house with her sister um, on her own because of a, a failed love affair or a love affair that didn't work. And we see her in retrospect in that affair and uh, we never discover why it ended and she doesn't discover yeah. that either. Tell me about the that openness, leaving that open. Why did you leave it open? Well, um, I think the first thing to say, he's called Robert. Um, people are inclined, I've noticed both with this book and one of my previous books, The Librarian, where there is also a love affair with a married man. Um, Robert is married. People are inclined to suppose that I'm holding up a finger of rebuke to these married men who have adulterous relationships. Um, I don't think I am. That's not my intention at all. Um, and I 
didn't dislike Robert. I absolutely understood that he was married. He tells Hassie from the beginning he's married and he's not going to leave his wife. So she's told what the terms are. His wife is older than him and there's a sort of unspoken understanding that it would be dishonorable to dump her as she's older than him and has also been a major contributor to his success as a commercial artist, which is what he is. Um, the love affair with him and Hassi is genuine. I, I felt that. I felt there was a genuine passion between them. But inevitably, as is always the way, unless you're very, very lucky in these situations, the wife discovers he's having an affair. And the affair attenuates. And at a certain point, Hassi gives up and goes off to look after her father, who's really in the last stages of his life. But during the course of the book, she learns that in fact, the wife has left Robert as a result of discovering this second act of adultery. And what he was free to come and recover the relationship with Hassie. And she never understands why he doesn't. And at a very much later date in the book, she actually meets him by, well, she has a painting of it that he's given her. And at a certain point, her sister says, why don't you sell this painting? Give up doing these illustrations, which you hate. And you can live perfectly comfortably on the proceeds for at least a couple of years. And I think she makes a psychological decision, which is, it's time to end this relationship, which she doesn't really understand the failure of. So she sends the picture to auction and by one of those coincidences, which do happen in real life, um, she meets him at the auction. He's there by accident. And she suddenly realizes that she feels nothing at all for him anymore. And she never discovers quite why it is he never comes to find her. And I felt that my editor wanted me to say, oh, he went off with another woman. And I said, that is such a cliche. Mm. People don't always go off with other women or other men. It's not like that. I think in human relationships, there are things we sometimes never quite understand ourselves. And as Miss Foote, that wise old woman says, um, it, maybe it's not that he didn't love you. Maybe he just didn't love you enough. And then she says something which I very much like, and I shall steal from her myself. Love is a flexible matter at best, don't you think? Mm. And I think what I was trying to show is that love affairs in life, as opposed to books, are not these cut and dried things. There are different um, affinities and different allegiances and different loyalties that come into play. And I think probably Robert was somebody who needed his wife in order to have the love affair um, and, and, and couldn't manage it so well without her there, but perhaps didn't really understand that himself. But anyway, I, I didn't want it to be the run of the mill love affair you get where the man's a bastard and lets the girl down. Because actually it turns out that what has happened to Hassie is a very different and a rather for her more creative life. And, and her <laughs> idea of herself also, of course, changes. 
speak of people's ideas being projected on others, but we can do it to ourselves just as much. And Hass's idea oh. of self changes. I think certainly we do it to ourselves. I mean, I think, um, I think she does have an idea of herself as um, wronged. I think she does have herself an idea of herself as put upon, and both of those things are true, of course, as well. And she does make rather a, a lot of fuss about this awful elf she has to draw. I mean, I'm sympathetic, but a bit sometimes I think, well, why don't you just get on with it? Stop fussing about it. <laughs> Um, and she, it takes her sister to point out that she doesn't really need to do this. So she's trapped herself inside a set of her own grievances and discontents. And that is something we all do. Mm. A bit in the way I was suggesting that within families, we encase ourselves in a, a useful shell of, of an idea of the other members of our family to protect us from the ways in which they can hurt us, I suppose. I think we can often use our misfortunes and our unhappinesses to trap ourselves into um, perhaps a failure to take other opportunities. And I think what happens in the book is that I think through the, if it's a bit of a cliche to say it like this, and I don't hope it isn't a cliche, but through the power of nature, through the experience of being in the natural world and being exposed to this very ancient landscape, um, the prison bars dissolve around her and a rather stronger, more elemental Hassi emerges. Well, I think with the emergence of this stronger and more elemental Hassi, we should draw it to close. And Thank you very much indeed, Sally, um, for joining me. And I should say that the book is available at 16.99. So give us a call or send us an email and we will provide you with a copy. Um, thank you very much indeed, Sally Vickers.